Hello, and welcome to Talky Talk, the podcast for the media by us.com. Uh, my name's Brent. I'm here today with TJ. Yeah. And David. Yeah. Silencio. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good segue. <laughs> I wanted to start the podcast this way to go, no, I podcasto. <laughs> there is no podcast. <laughs> this has all been recorded. <laughs> a trumpet. Yeah, that's me outside your window just mouthing the words right now. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> shit, <laughs> fucking horrifying. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're talking obviously about Mulholland Drive today. <laughs> obviously, yeah, our uh, talk of fame nomination for me, someone who had never seen the movie, I'd never seen Mulholland Drive, so mm. this was my first watch. And boy, someone described it to me as it's a watch. <laughs> And that is a good description of this movie. It's a movie. It's a it's a watch. <laughs> it's also a good description. <laughs> it's like the uh Well, it's also it's kind of a TV show. It's like the uh, Charlotte's Web like sayings in the spider web too. It's like some movie. Some movie. <laughs> so uh So yeah, what's the plot, Brent? Just real quick, what you got? <laughs> David offered to take the uh, plot synopsis. Yeah. I'm gonna do it chronological rather than movie-wise. I think that makes the most sense. Uh, rather, know, rather than circling we, back. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know if you are the same chronological idea as me, though. So, go for it. Okay. Now I'm nervous. <laughs> well, I've got I've got two takes on, on the two realities. I think I'm going to agree with your chronological take, but I think that in my head it could be something else. I think it is meant to be multiple things. But sure, we'll see. I'll, I'll do my take and then figure out other takes after that. All right, sure. sounds good. Okay, and uh, heavy spoilers for this one because this is going to be some interpretation. It's literally impossible you, to talk about this movie. Yeah, if yeah. you haven't watched this movie, go watch this movie, and then this will this podcast will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the movie starts one way, but I'm going to say chronologically it starts with Naomi Watts. Her name is Diane Selwyn. And she is uh, friends and sometimes lovers with this actress named Camilla Rhodes. They kind of meet on the set of this movie called The Sylvia North Story, directed by Adam Kesher, who is uh, uh, an early uh, um, Justin Thoreau. Mm-hmm. I was blanking on his first name there. And um, she does not get roles, and Camilla keeps getting roles. Camilla starts getting involved with the director that's helping her career, and uh, ends up, even though she has like a romantic thing with Naomi Watts' character, she, uh, yeah, um, Camilla Rhodes starts torturing her a little bit, getting her little small parts, and getting to witness her happiness. It kind of culminates in this dinner party that uh, Naomi Watts is late to, where... Uh, Camilla and Adam Kesher, the director, get engaged. So, despondent at her lack of roles and her, um, you know, she loves this woman, and that that gets taken away. She talks to this hitman to knock off uh, Camilla Rhodes to kill her, and says that you know once it's done, I'm going to give you a blue key and we'll put it on the place we talked about, which we come to learn is her coffee table. So, what happens after that is she comes home one one day and finds the blue key on her coffee table, meaning Camilla Rhodes is dead. This kind of puts her over the edge. She kind of instantly 
not instantly, but she comes to regret the decision to do that. That means she's no longer, you know, with her in any capacity. And uh, she kind of has a breakdown and ends up, uh, uh, this point's open to interpretation, but kind of killing herself. Or, you know, spiraling into I think a complete so. breakdown. I think suicide and, is the end. I would, I would yeah. She gets, uh, she starts hallucinating and this, like, terrifying elderly couple chasing her around her, her house. And she gets a gun in her drawer and, you know, shoots her head out. <laughs> Blow, blows her brains out. Presumably, but I think we all agree. Yeah. yeah. So yes. then what follows after that is the beginning of the movie, movie which the easy explanation is wish fulfillment. She's either in purgatory or it's a dream where this is how she wished everything happened. The movie starts with a jitterbug contest, seemingly out of context, but you come to realize Naomi Watts won a jitterbug contest to go out to Hollywood. And everything is really affected, kind of 1950s style. Everyone's oh, oh, Jilly, oh, gee, Jiminy Willikers type dialogue, yeah. which Lynch is kind of famous for. Um, and in this... We see the hit try to be taken out on Camilla Rhodes, but in her wish fulfillment, she wishes that it didn't happen. She now pictures the hitman as this inept guy that, you know, they tried to, you know, take her in a limo and kill her, but something happens there. There's some joyriders that make that not happen and uh, make um, Camilla Rhodes, who uh, gets amnesia from the accident and uh, kind of comes into contact with uh, Naomi Watts' character, who's now branded as uh, Betty, taking on this identity of Betty. And Camilla is no longer Camilla, not right. even the same actress at this point. Right. They kind of change roles a little bit. So we, from the Hitman tip, there's a scenes that kind of seem disconnected, that kind of connect at the end, of her wishing this guy was inept. There's him talking to another guy, getting like an address book, and that goes horribly wrong. He like uh, shoots him, goes through the wall, ends up hitting this other lady, and has to kill her. And this guy, this janitor, ends up killing him. So, in her fantasy, this guy is really bad at his job, and you know, and uh, she, Camilla Rhodes, that character, the actress, takes on the, the name of Rita in her amnesia. So after that, it's kind of a film noir where Betty is this amazing actress trying to help out this amnesia victim, kind of figure out what's going on. Uh, from that, you have her in her Aunt Ruth's apartment um, getting an audition and being friends with the, um, the hotel property, or the, the apartment property manager, who we Coco. later find out... Coco. Coco is actually the director's father from, er, from later in the movie. Mm -hmm. Sorry, this is a little, like, a recursive a little bit, trying to describe it. Yeah. But um, <laughs> You're the, doing a great job. The yeah, biggest thing is that it's wish fulfillment. Mm -hmm. When she does the audition, she is an incredible actress. And the, the director, Bob Booker, that she talks about in the dinner party, you know, that's the instigating event near the end of the movie, um, he's kind of played as a fool also. Yeah. You know, he says stuff, and everyone in the casting room is like, what is this jerk? Um... And uh, she blows the audition away, and then she ends up. They take him to this, take her to the set of this up-and-coming director, Adam Kesher, and they kind of lock eyes, like they're meant to be together. And she's really the girl. The other part of this wish fulfillment is her thought for why she doesn't get some of these roles is that there is this elaborate international conspiracy 
headed by like Mr. Roke, who's the dwarf in the the paneled room, mm-hmm. and the Castigliani brothers, who are like these like uh, mafia mm-hmm. integrated kind of guys. Uh, high level henchmen for Roke. Sort of. Yeah, yeah. high-level henchmen that say, this is the girl. Camilla Rhodes has to get this part. Adam Kesher wants the brilliant actress, Betty, you know, in her mind. But that's the reason why this doesn't happen. Another part of the wish fulfillment is kind of a plot that we see is the the bumbling of Adam Kesher's personal life kind of spiraling out. Mm-hmm. As he comes home and sees, like, the pool man is sleeping with his wife and kind of... Um, you know, Diane Selwyn, through her purgatory dream wish fulfillment, kind of has this guy beaten up, you know, taken advantage of, like, uh, embarrassed. They steal all of his money until he casts the, uh, you know, the correct girl who is not based on talent why she gets this role. So they end up, the reality of uh, piercing the purgatory happens when they see... Um, kind of Rita sees a waitress at Winkies and has the name Diane and it starts to spark something. Um, she knows the name Diane so they go to this apartment of Diane Selwyn they kind of look her up and in there there's a dead body which we kind of find out later is Naomi Watts's dead body kind of piercing the veil of this this uh, dream and uh, we see a blue key in the mystery and uh, later on, Betty professes her love to Camilla Rhodes, and it's it's reciprocated. They have a romantic relationship, and they rely on each other. It's kind of the ideal way she wanted things to go. And uh, later on, um, Rita starts talking in her sleep about Silencio Club and Noai Banda, Noai Orquesta. That's kind of calling towards the the final layers of her dream being broken is they go to this place that says everything is an illusion, which is literally true for the reality that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, there's a club where they're like lip-syncing, and it's all these examples of you know fake reality that you assume is real. There's these uh, weird effects where you know there's thunder, and then um, Betty starts kind of convulsing from it. And it kind of uh, you know ends with this performance at the Silencio Club for this woman who's lip-syncing and then passes out. They take her off stage. And when they get home, Betty is mysteriously gone. And Ruth ends up opening the box, which you can come to symbolize as that's where she put all her dreams and her optimism for coming out there. Rita? Uh, No. Uh, Yeah, Rita. Yeah. Sorry. Not Aunt Ruth. Rita. Okay. My bad. You're good. Yeah, Rita. Your first fuck up, which is amazing. Yes. <laughs> really amazing. Rita opens the box, and it's, yeah, I think the symbolism there is that's where she locked away her optimism and her hope for life, which is gone at the end of the movie. Um, and uh, when they open it and finally go inside, they're going back to this kind of recursive, maybe not a recursive loop, but that's kind of the end of uh, the dream. And there's, a, there's another thing. Yeah. There's a couple things that, like, pay off here and there. Yeah. Like, there's the, uh, as part of the international conspiracy, there's this cowboy guy who's kind of the fixer. Yeah. He says, like, it's part of the thing of, like, why she doesn't get roles is there's people like this. But he says something like, you know, you'll see me once if things go good. You'll see me twice if things don't. And uh, you, you, as the viewer, see him twice, you know, through this dream sequence so you know that, you know, the bad reality happened. Right. And you also see this uh, Winkies thing, you know, in the parking lot, there's this guy who says, there's someone behind there who's doing everything, you know, that, you know, they're the cause. 
it's like the the symbolism of evil and darkness of this world kind of contained in this character. It goes behind there, and there really is. It's kind of a freaky scene if you've never seen it before. A lot of dread that goes into that. And uh, that is kind of a callback to the actual scene in Winkies where she orders the hit. And that's kind of where her, uh, you know, her evil... I guess her evil in ending this person's life manifests itself. And I probably missed a whole bunch of other stuff, but those are kind of a lot of the things that seem unconnected and random kind of pop back up in, like, her dreams populating with characters she's, she already knows. Oh, part of it is the... Um, in the dream, she divorces the two people. There's the career climber, Camilla Rhodes, who sleeps with Adam and starts being cruel, and the person she knows and loves, which separates into Rita. That's why they're physically two different characters mm -hmm. in her dream, but they're the same people in reality. Mm -hmm. um, anything else I miss or any other interpretation there? Uh, I mean, there's some stuff you glossed over, but uh, some of that is, is hard. And I think a lot of it is left from the original idea of David Lynch, which was for it to be a TV series and probably some stuff that ended up in the movie that is just going to naturally have a loose end. Like the characters that you see in the diner in the second or third scene of the movie is a little just out there. You know what I mean? The two guys, the guy talking to what seems like he's talking to like a therapist almost mm -hmm. and, I, in the I, diner. I do think that scene weirdly fits in like a Lynchian way because it, he, they, it's the one scene in the movie where a guy talks about a dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he talks about dreaming, and so it's your first early clue. Yeah, but even within that, there's a scene where, you know, where it zooms down on his full plate of food. He hasn't eaten anything. Mm -hmm. The guy he's talking to is eating everything. And then when it pans out, when he gets up to follow him outside, the table is empty. So, mm -hmm. like, even within that dream, there's right stuff going on. Yep. And that's part of, like, mm -hmm. dream logic, is sometimes you dream you're part of it, sometimes you dream watching stuff. I think you, I said, you don't do a lot of it, but everybody else in your dream is acting normal. But you don't ever eat in your dreams, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's tied together from the location and the kind of activity it represents. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's not it's not tidy, right? But it's I think that's the that would be my guess for it's not irrelevant. There. I don't know if this is the place to bring this up, but since we're talking about dreams, uh, did you notice that the uh, near the beginning some of the dialogue is like just slightly off, but it's it's dubbed. It's the act, mm. it's like the actors doing it, but it's just slightly uh -huh. off their mouths, hmm. and for that Lynch did for effect. Well, I don't what, think I noticed it. You just know that it's off just because the way people are behaving are a little off. It's like the elderly couple from the plane. They get in a limo and just like, yeah, just horrifyingly smile, unnervingly. It's that scene. It's that <laughs> yeah. Scene, yeah. I, I think there's a definitely everything David said is I think the main like thread. Through the film, uh, explained really well there. Yes, I, I agree. I think he did an exceptional job. There is it. a kind of a side story that I thought is also very important, which is uh, pretty much like a kind of adapting and how you have to change and how Hollywood changes you. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to see Betty from Diane gives you a maybe a window into how she saw herself when Diane first arrived. And, like, was pleasant sure. and gullible. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a line of dialogue that makes me think this real bad. When he's talking about the the, the monster outside the diner. Mm -hmm. and it, which ends up just being, like, a disfigured homeless man, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, he has a line, I think the line he says is, I never want to see that face outside of a dream again. Mm -hmm. 
which is a really weird way to say that. Because yeah. he's saying, like, I don't mind seeing it in dreams. Like, it's almost something that I know I have to see to succeed. But I don't want to see it in reality. But it, to not say, like, I just never want to see that face again, which is what a normal person would say, I thought that was that was really interesting. Also, the title of the film, I think, is a definite nod to Sunset Boulevard. It just makes sense with mm-hmm. the way Hollywood worked. Yeah, even with the abbreviation of Drive, yeah. it's like, you know, DR instead of Drive. Right. They could have written it out, kind of like Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think you could... And that's the I, I I I first off tend to agree with David's plot synopsis. Like that's the way that's yeah. the most likely version of the story for me. But I could also see it being just uh, an illustration of how two identical actresses can go down vastly different paths, and how or just how or maybe it's a in terms of like Hollywood wrecking somebody like you were saying do idealism yeah. versus like reality mm-hmm. yeah and how one is just how you think Hollywood's gonna be and one is the cold harsh reality of being a struggling actress in mm-hmm. Hollywood yeah I think either way you have that mirror of the experiences that they both halves of the film kind of feed into each other right and you get that effect regardless of how you see what you think about the plot being mm-hmm. you know, was it, were both parts a dream of somebody, or were was one a purgatory sort of like like somebody mentioned, and, or is one just a dream that Diane had, which is what I was thinking was that the first eighty percent of the movie was just Diane. <laughs> I, I never read this anywhere. I never came across it. The last time I watched it, I remember not being fully convinced that the dream was a dream and that the reality was a reality that it could be flipped and there's no reason to think otherwise. And I see that now and I watched the movie last time for the first time in, you know, seven or eight years and I see that it's obvious that the dream is a dream and the end is a reality. But at the same time, knowing David Lynch now and how he makes movies that feel like that dream anyway. Yeah. Like, I wonder if this is a reality for him and he coated it with all this stuff that everybody just wants to believe is unreal. And then at the end, this dark thing is a nightmare. Because a lot of that is very nightmarish in the reality. The people going tiny and going through the door and chasing her through, that's as much dream, that's more dream world than anything we see in the dream. Yeah, You could argue that the uh, everything after she sees the blue key is where the dream starts anyway. I mean, the hallucination and maybe she doesn't even kill herself. Right. But she's, you know, just in a dark place. Yeah. So, but I mean, it's, that's a great that's a great point right there because if you watch Blue Velvet, those characters talk like 1950s characters, and that's right. the reality. Right. A lot of his uh, movies are kind of like that. People talk very stylized. And if you like use that as a weapon, almost yeah, to convince you that it's a like, dream. You assume this is David Lynch reality because right. that's what you'd know. Right. So it's interesting. It's fun that it honestly, in my mind, could be both. Yeah. I think if you're, if I think you're, there's a there's a logical choice, which I think we've all kind of landed on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it is definitely not concrete in any shape. Proven. Yes. Well, absolutely. I I didn't say which no, the, you didn't. It's just that's why it's fun. I'm yeah, just right. talking up the movie at that point. Okay. That's kind of the beauty of Lynch is he is right. off like that. His his stories are off like that, with some exceptions. Mm-hmm. He's got some straight Zodiac. straight ahead stuff. Yeah. That's a uh, oh yeah Fincher. Fincher. Straight like, story? Straight story, Elephant Man, stuff like that. Uh, it's just yeah. like, 
biopic or you know character study. Yeah. All right. Shall we? Shall we gauntlet this thing? Sure. Yeah. I think we got a decent grounding of yeah. Where we started. Really well done. Yeah. Okay. First off, was it entertaining? Uh, this will be different uh, perspectives for uh, each of us. I'll go first. This is my first watch, and uh, it was. Uh, it took a little while to really hook me with its entertainment value, but about. 40 minutes in, I was pretty much hooked for the rest of the movie. And, and enwrapped at that point. How about you? Entertaining? Yeah, I just... Uh, this is probably like the fourth or fifth time I've seen it. You know, I own it on DVD. Loved it back in the day as like a mindfucker movie. Um, I kind of uh, appreciate it more watching it again. Because the things... My first time that seemed like non-sequitur stuff that's like mystery and horror just for shock's sake things that happen seem more like they're actually tied if not plot wise that they're tied thematically to what you'll see later mm-hmm. i think it kind of threads what seem like open you know open threads at first up later on i think it's very satisfying in that respect how they tie it together i would say it's in different levels it's weird it's it's not entertaining in like a blockbuster kind of way at all but it's no. very entertaining as a movie watcher um, it's, for somebody like us who's seen a ton of movies, I really got interested in the scene in the diner with the two men that you almost never see again. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a fantastic scene. And uh, then when you get this, when you're starting to watch what's going on and you realize that Rita, the character, is created as a projection of the viewer because she has no history, you know nothing about her. Mm-hmm. So you really, you just, Rita's almost the straight man. Yeah. Like, because it's, there's nothing. You don't know what she did. You don't know anything about it until the end. Uh, that was super entertaining. Like, she's distressful. There's, like, a car parked outside, and she's like, keep going. And as the viewer, you have no idea what's going on. And it turns out, you know, being distrustful of the reality is the right way to go. Right. I don't know about the right way to go, but it, a way it seems go. more appropriate. <laughs> yeah. What kind of emotional responses did you guys get from this movie? I mean, not, this is a, an emotional an emotion that we often talk about with this question when we when we do the gauntlet. But uh, the movie is way scarier than I remember at times. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like like guttural fear. Yeah. Not yeah. like boo. Is there's a feeling of dread that even the dream sequences that I think is kind of persistent through the movie. Maybe we talk about it more with the sound, but jump to that part is the sound design and the score are just like constant dread there's kind of like some machine noises or things that very low decibels going on even in like some happy scenes there's jarring cuts there's out of focus stuff i think all that contributes to this sense of dread and nihilism there's, the movie there's trying a to do. ton of that there's yeah. her walking through aunt ruth's apartment for the first time right before she finds rita in the shower mm-hmm. you just feel like everything is off yeah. Like nothing. Like the pictures are like crooked. Some of the pictures don't have pictures in them. They're just like empty frames. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, what the fuck is going on? And then, I don't know, even the like great scenes to kind of echo what David was saying, when she's killing it in that audition, which really is a just an incredible acting performance mm-hmm. from Naomi Watts in that scene. But when she like kind of grabs the guy's hand and shoves it up, like not up her ass, but into yeah. her ass, that's almost just like, you're like, wait, is this like a. I mean, it's almost is. casting couch. Yeah, type. Uh, it was yeah, just feeling real weird. Made you feel kind of icky. Mm-hmm. That happens a lot throughout the film. Though. Uh, I'll I'll answer the next question. Was the film what you expected it to be? Because it was the first time I watched for me. It was actually 
uh, in a way, I knew it was, I, I kind of knew going in it was going to be a, like you said, a mindfuck, twisty, mm-hmm. weird, dreamlike movie. Uh, but it surprised me in the uh, how much it relied on just those Lynchian hallmarks, and I, I really I love those. Like it, I don't know, there were scenes that just reminded me of Twin Peaks here and there. Yeah, and it was uh, it was very I don't know. I like that. I like that it's it's clearly a Lynch film. On on that note, it's uh, it surprised me in rewatching it. Is a hallmark of Lynch is his humor. Yeah, is it was there are parts that are like genuinely funny or genuine like decent satire, because his it, Twin Peaks is definitely funny in parts. Oh, hilarious! And a lot of his movies are really funny. Yeah, even when they're being disturbing. Yeah, I mean there were several things in this that were just kind of like heh, weird. I think one of them mm-hmm. is Billy Ray Cyrus' performance is hilarious and great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that entire <laughs> scene it was was really what struck me as like this is so David Lynch. Like yeah. there's this. There's this noiry, you know, s- connection between Betty and Rita, and then you just cut to this hotshot director going home and and having a very humorous discovery of being cuckolded. The he just matter of factly gets the paint out, and yeah, just like the, and then for like a couple scenes after, he's just coated in this like little uh, pink paint. Yeah. Well, I love that David knows the movie well. Brent had never seen it before. I'd seen it before, but definitely needed a rewatch to be able to talk about it in, in, with any sense. And uh, I laughed out loud at the airport when the old age just like, we'll be watching for you in the big screen, Betty. And I was like, I forgot. Of course her fucking name is Betty. Betty. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Irene and Betty. It's just like the most American, like apple pie names. Mm-hmm. Well, we've already we've already talked a good bit about storytelling choices and whatnot. So, uh, I will say that's Lynch's strong suit, though, in most films, and this one is no different. And I think that that's where this movie kind of whips ass in, in other movies. Is the story is narrative super fun, super original. It's, yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I don't know. I feel like it's our kind of story, our kind of narrative. I think it has compelling characters for sure. God, and more you almost have to say compelling actors because yeah. people switch roles and switch like tones midway throughout. Yeah. Were you surprised, Brent, real quick, while we're talking about that, in how good of an actress she was in what you didn't know was a fantasy at that point when she goes on the audition? Were you like kind of shocked that she was that good? Yeah. Because she, she just like, practiced the scene, and she's so bad in the practice with Rita, mm-hmm. and they're they're laughing about how hammy of a scene it is, and then she goes there and just slays that her scene. that character as that character. So like three removed from Naomi Watts mm-hmm. might be the best acting I've ever seen Naomi Watts do. Yeah, like it was insane. It was so good. I rewound it, and watched it again last night with Cass because it was just, oh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing in her character that would ground where where that scene's about to come out of. Yeah, which is why it's it's like you said, it's definitely it's wish fulfillment. She wishes she was that actress, mm-hmm. like she, all time great, or yeah. she or she thinks she is that actress, and thinks that it took it would take some vast conspiracy to to keep her Be out of her. her. Yeah, uh, she's a she's part. of course she's a natural star, like a day out of moving, <laughs> like flying up from Canada. She even has that line where she's, uh, like, kind of making, like, the, well, what's the word? Like, the, 
having the like hipster stance, the cool stance. So she's like, I don't really want to be a movie star. I just would rather be a great actress. I'd rather be mm-hmm. known as a great actress. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, like everybody wants to say that, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, uh, this is gonna be fun. Does it have one scene or more that stand out to you as memorable? Uh, there are two immediately that jump out in my m- well, three, I guess. I think the diner scene that we talked about earlier with the two men is great. It is great. I think it's a master kind of short story in itself. Yeah. Just the the playing with that dread and the inevitability of it and the 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 real terror and the I think it plays with that really well. And he does that with a character that we literally just met three minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we it's yeah it's a uh, it's it's exciting to watch things like that in movies. It's just, it's so much fun. It's just like the slow walk over there, and yeah. like the soundtrack is this drone, and you get the shot of the entrance is the other way. We're obviously going the wrong way in this scene, thematically and literally. Oh my god, he uses lenses in this movie. I mean, like, just, just owns them. It's fantastic. In that scene, you're not even like, if he did it first person, he'd be giving it away. But he does this thing where, like, when it's behind one person, it's this, and when it's behind another person, it's it's this. Mm-hmm. Even with like people that don't exist, like the the henchman brothers talking to mm-hmm. Roark, like when you're behind him and looking out the the lens, it just I don't know, it's great. My second scene that I will pick is uh, the audition scene we've already talked about. That is one that I would go back and rewatch from time to time. I think. Uh, I think I will because uh, she and that's the scene that shows me I think that really impressed me with Naomi Watts in this movie which is how she can go from Betty to Betty's idea of how good an actress she is Betty's version of and then to Diane later (laughs) like but the but yeah that that audition is just and just all the there's there's so many like funny little off kilter things about how everyone's behaving, the producer and the the casting agent and just the the uh, the director is just really funny. How the wish fulfillment, in mm-hmm. my opinion, they kind of set him up to be a boob. They didn't pick Betty. They have to tell like, him to say action. Just play this with themselves, but with each other. And it's just like everyone's just rolling eyes at that. Laughed hard at the producer being like, Bob. He's like, yes. Action. <laughs> the producer had to tell the director to say action. I'll add a, a couple of scenes uh, and to see if David has any extras. Um, I think the, the scene in Club Silencio was beautiful. That was my third pick. It was Silencio. Yeah. yeah. That was probably the one I was thinking of when going back to rewatch it. I was a huge fan of the Caligari. Was that the brothers? Yeah, yeah. the Castigliari. Castigliari. Uh, but the, the scene with them in the boardroom. The espresso? Oh the espresso. my god. So funny and awkward and great. And he's like, napkin. He's like, what did you say? Napkin! Yeah. <laughs> and the guy's just sitting back there and gives him the napkin. He's like, I guess I go. <laughs> he like walks backwards and then turns around. And then he just like ends Help me! Righteous anger. So Dan Hedaya just like, his face vibrating yeah, with Dan rage. Had, yeah. Dan Hedaya was really good. This is the scene. girl. That's like, that's other, a great other, scene. Other dream shit. Like, he's just got a golf club? <laughs> just carries around a golf club. It's in like a holster almost in his little, <laughs> little like uh, Miata or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, any other scenes that really stand out? I mean, the, the the good thing about Lynch is that like he's really good at creating scenes, great scenes. Yeah, I mean the the final scene is horrifying and really well done. Great horror direction there, and also a great horror direction in the scene where they find Diane's 
presumably body. Yeah. It's yeah. horrifying. Especially it's, when she comes to, if she, after she's climbed through the window and she comes to the door and she's got her hand over her mouth and yes, smell it. And un- you can just suddenly know that something's very wrong. Yeah. Yeah, you know immediately. And at the end, there's just like a master of varying his little like tricks and techniques. And it's then, like you got the uh, like the elderly couple terrorizing her. It goes like first person to like looking at her being completely terrified to like, you know, that started as like there being miniatures and like kind of jump cuts. And at the end, there's like the smoke and it all sucks out the window from, you know, her shooting herself. Uh, and you see that smoke a lot. Like in the Silencio Club, like clearing scenes. Mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of brilliant how we'd like threw a little doubt on the whole thing with like, oh, maybe the girl in apartment 12 is the murderer. And she was gonna, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that character was totally just irrelevant, except to like make the viewer be like, well, maybe she killed somebody. Mm-hmm. She killed this Diane person. Yeah. I read that they also used to be involved. From her saying, like, you still have some of my dishes oh, kind right. of thing. And kind of checking back in on her, and she's kind of lost at that point. Yeah. Uh, are there any more themes we need to hit on? I feel like we covered some of that with the plot. I, I don't think it's... I don't think it's it's too overt in its themes. I think it's... It tells its story. I think there is a theme of the story. But, uh... I don't think it hits you over the head with it. No, 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 not at all. The themes are carried out beautifully, I think. And I think I think David hits the big one, and uh, then there's the one I brought up too that, that I like a lot of the kind of driving you insane mm-hmm. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And the something Lynch touches in on a lot is there's like a lot of fantastical horror movies out there, but he really circles in and highlights the horror of reality. Yeah. really well in the movie like the most horrifying stuff is in the quote unquote reality of her life that we see yeah and a lot of that's just seeing the character of Diane after being you know beat over the head with Betty for an hour and a half yeah he does it just enough to turn he, he makes Betty our protagonist you know yeah and because she's sort of the P.I. in the movie it's a, it's a noirish movie and yeah. she's the P.I. Absolutely. that we see everything through it's her trying to solve Rita's mystery and then, uh, and then, boy, it turns on its head, and we find out that she's the real villain of the movie. Yeah. Versus, if you do the movie the opposite way, I think uh, doing that kind of wish fulfillment first, you're so on Betty's side that it makes the end, the reality, so much more tragic. Yeah. Because you you have seen her in this idealized version, and the talent she could have had, or you know maybe the talent she wanted to have, and just getting chewed up by life. Yeah. She's just not equipped to handle that system that, like you said, yeah. can break you apart. Right. It's really great in that sense. She's just a jitterbugger yeah. from Deepwater, Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, let's delve into the performances in the movie. Uh, which stand out? Were there any good or bad that stand out? I wonder who wins the movie. For me, it's Naomi Watts. Yeah, she's, she's an easy win, I think. Yeah. Just yeah. the different uh, flavors she brings to the screen, all the different incarnations of character. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've never seen this movie and you're wondering why Naomi Watts is like a sought-after actress on some stuff, like this is the thing that did it. Yeah. It stunned me to find out she was not nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. In a year where Renee Zellweger was nominated for Bridget Jones' Diary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. I don't think... 
it's it's hard, man. It's so hard to judge an, a performance for eighty percent of that movie because mm-hmm. it's so yeah. It's like watching like it's what I talk about with uh, Cass a lot. We're both big Yorgos Lanthimos fans, mm-hmm. and it's like, can you say that Colin Farrell or not, like Nicole Kidman were good in this movie because they're literally acting like I would. Like it's True. not hard to act that way, and uh, like I know that I know that for sure. Even just with like. Just knowing that it's just deadpan. Oh yeah, that's like a lot of. I think that's. Uh, I agree. I think that's Lynch's thing because like a lot of Twin Peaks is bad acting. Right, but like on, on purpose. Right. Yeah, it's the aesthetic that he's creating. But then her as Diane and her as the auditioning Betty. Mm-hmm. I mean, you realize you see that she's got just infinite amount of chops. Right. Yeah, and just her as like tragic Betty. She's so unnerving to spend time with. She's so sniveling and broken and trembling and uncomfortable in her own skin. Yeah. I think that, uh, I also really like, I like Justin Thoreau. I didn't like him as much early on, but I like what he's able to do with the reality versus dream version. Mm -hmm. And he goes from being, uh, you know, like you said, uh, just nothing goes right for him in the dream version. And then... He is uh, really just scummy, you know. He just comes off that way in the in in reality. Yeah. You could see why, if that's the reality, the wish fulfillment would be to humiliate this guy, cuckold him, and mm-hmm. make him like embarrassing. Yeah. So he does he's, a good. Yeah, his his just like um, effortless cruelty is uh, he does that really well. When he gets in to show the guy how to put his arm around the girl, mm-hmm. the gets in the car and then just starts uh, making out with uh, with Camilla. Camilla, yeah, it's it's really tough to keep track of all the double names yeah. in the movie. But yeah, he, uh, I thought he was good. Also, I like that he was in both this movie and also International Assassin because yeah, that is he's been in two of the better dream related weird or is it a dream? Type uh, yeah. Piece of fiction. I was trying to find an actor name so I could say somebody that I probably have in my top three. I think one person who had the most to do in both stories, and I thought was actually really good at both of them, was uh, Joe the assassin, Mark Pellegrino. <laughs> I really thought he was really good in mm-hmm. the bumbling scene, which was hilarious. It's really funny, mm-hmm. and he was really good turning that completely one eighty to the diner scene, yeah. where he's like super straight and honest with her. He's like, once you hand me this money, it's my money, and it's done. Mm-hmm. And he was great in that scene, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd probably be in my top three, honestly, because it's just hard to pick anybody after that. I know some people loved, um, what's your name's performance? Laura Herring? Yeah. Uh, Roger Ebert was very, very high on her. I thought it was good. I didn't think it was bad, but it... I just think most of her scenes she shares with Naomi Watts, and I think Naomi Watts eats her lunch every time. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she quite pulls the cruelty at the end that Thoreau can do. Mm-hmm. I think she's kind of like God, playing it. so at, hard to watch. Yeah, They're like not, at, talk, not saying it. Yeah. Just laughing at each other and making out while everybody's staring at him. Just yeah. fucking hate it. I like that it cuts before they say it right to the diner. That's like, you know, what she was thinking of when she kind of orders the hit. Yeah. Well, uh... Would you have uh, in in a in a generic year? Would you have thought any? Would you have put Naomi Watts as a Oscar contender? Yes. Would you? In a 
In a normal year. In a generic year? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In a generic year. I can see why she didn't get nominated, because it it's an uncomfortable performance. And it's an uncomfortable movie. Like, obviously, Bridges Jones's diary, you know, out of, or into actual context for that year, is much more enjoyable to, you know, throw your vote behind. I think Halle Berry won that year for Monsters Ball. She did. Yeah. It's also, I don't know, we went through some of this when we were talking about, in the last podcast, where I was talking about how Mission Impossible 1 probably got kind of a bad rap, because movies weren't, movies that had, like, twisted storytelling weren't super popular. I mean... Mission Impossible came out. We had said like Natural Born Killers and Pulp Fiction, and just came out before that. That was good examples. This movie's not new. It's two thousand one. I mean, Memento had just come out. It's it's not like a. I feel like the masses and the, the viewing populace, especially the voting blocks of the Academy, probably weren't used to films like this. They didn't know how to. And now it's kind of the norm. You know what I mean? Yeah, they kind of like. Uh, I think the easy response to this is to award the writing and direction. Which did I think? Yeah, Memento got the screenplay, and this got the direction. Right. Then it is to recognize. Okay, you really got to think about the performance in those crazy scenes that you love the story and direction for. And just how hard it is to act multiple characters in a movie and do it that well. Yeah. Let's uh, move on to uh, the technical achievements in the movie. Anything of visual effects? There's 100%, 100% the the editing and the shot composition. And, um, you know, I just try to dive in. There's so many scenes that are off-center where, like, the, the character is, like, a little off or two characters are off and there's, like, empty space. Mm-hmm. Just, to make, just to make it uncomfortable, too. Yeah, it's just a little off. Like, yeah. I don't... I think there's some scenes that have a little Dutch angle. Like, where it's a little to the side. But, man, the sound design this time I really recognize. It's almost like a machine whirring that gets spliced into a synthesizer. And just sound is that so good. low, like, rumble dread. And, like, the camera, too, sometimes is, like, way more active than we've ever seen. Like, when they go into Club Silencio and you have the out-of-focus camera, like, rush into the club. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of first person yeah. running into the club with it's, the camera. It's kind of a little unnerving. Scary. Yeah. And there's a lot of first person here, but kind of different than we've seen in, like, Last of Sheila or something like that, mm-hmm. where, like, uh, it'll be transition shots where the camera just, like, goes from a red room and, like, buries its head in a pillow just for tone and atmosphere. I think it's, a you know, it's really good at m- manufacturing that, that tone of unease because... None of the characters really know where they're at because we're playing with reality the entire movie. Yeah, I think a, a, the sound is the technical achievement that jumped out the mist to me. I mean, there's definitely some makeup and some special effects that's done really well. But This is the kind of things that I would probably need a second watch to appreciate more because I was mm-hmm. just trying to follow the plot. Hard with a narrative like this to focus active, on other shit. Yeah. Active paying attention for that. For sure. Yeah. And also like I like the score a lot. Angela Badalamenti is David Lynch's guy. He did yeah. the Twin Peaks stuff. But I love like the like noir guitar that gets like revved into some stuff like the like the little tremolo stuff like in the dinner party scene where they get engaged. Right. We'll say, I never thought I could see uh, a lip-synced version of a Roy Orbison song <laughs> better than Blue Velvet, but I think I might prefer this. I don't know, it's tough. It's <laughs> close, but it was, it's it was uh, great. Uh, that uh, woman who uh, performed that song was just magnificent, I thought. Mm-hmm. I love that version. The Spanish version of Crying is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Okay, let's move on to... Uh, of those involved with the film, would this be anyone's number one achievement? For whom would it be closest? And uh, where would it stand within the careers? I think Naomi Watts... I think it's the best thing I've seen her in. I haven't seen either one of her nominated films. Have you? I've seen 21 Grams. Oh, uh, that's actually... Uh, I wouldn't say I've seen it, but I know I have. Yep. They're the um, ones The Impossible. It's like so that the tsunami, tsunami movie. movie. I didn't really see that. I didn't either. I've seen her in some good stuff here and there, but yeah, this this would be the, the best for me, for her. What about Lynch? Lynch, I mean, is, Lynch is tough. Is that what you're about to do? Kind of. It's hard. Yeah, I, I think David and me are probably going to be close to the same page on this. Like, if... Somebody came up to me and they were like, I want to know if I would like David Lynch. What should I watch? And I can't recommend Twin Peaks. Oh. Then, well, I mean, talk of fame, TV's not allowed. You so, say, like, movies. Yeah. Specifically. I would go here. And the only movie that I would consider going instead would be Eraserhead. Only because it's a, it's a movie man's movie. It's a movie watcher's movie. Yeah, it's an art film. Yeah. But this is the most Lynchian normal film that I've seen. And I haven't yeah. seen his whole filmography. It was Have like, you seen Inland Empire? Yeah, that's his last, right? Yeah, it's the one that followed this one up by... It's and like it followed a that years weird later. Like, online thing he did, too. Yeah. The Rabbit Project, I think is what it's called. I read some about it last night. Inland Empire is almost too Lynch. and uh, This seemed like enough Lynch. Yeah, it's but still... But not too much Lynch. It's still followable. I don't know, whatever the word, followable, you can follow what's going on. Right. And appreciate the, like, uh, the weird, uh, grotesque stuff that's happening. Whereas Inland Empire, I think, goes too far. Um, I might answer that blue velvet as far as the thing to show someone. This might be my number one for him, though. No, like, Elephant Man's great, but it's such an outlier. Yeah. Same I would as, not recommend somebody who thinks they might be into David Lynch to go see Elephant Man first. Or like Dune. Yeah, I would Dune's never like Dune. Dune's like a whole other right. thing. I, I would pick this probably because I feel like this is a... I mean, I love that it just started as a TV show. So it's like, if you can't show them Twin Peaks, but you want to show them like a... Just a... Not a version of Twin Peaks, but just a... Get, I feel like this has enough of Twin Peaks in it. Where it's it's got the little characters who the one-off weird characters you mm-hmm. know i mean the cowboy is like the log lady or whatever yeah. it's just some some character that factors in but they're just eccentric and weird and and offbeat and uh you get this big mystery that connects in the end and everything kind of comes together and it probably helps to rewatch the movie to to connect it even more and i feel like that's that's sort of the the vibe of Twin Peaks to yeah. me, and still has the the humor mm-hmm. of these strange situations. Um, has anybody seen Wild at Heart? I've yes, not. I've seen Wild at Heart. How's it? It's uh, it's pretty bonkers. Okay, that was <laughs> the it, Palm Door winner, right? Yeah, okay. it's it's pretty bonkers, but it is kind of grounded in reality. It has this bizarre heavy metal soundtrack throughout the entire movie, hmm. and Nicolas Cage is unhinged in it. Willem Dafoe is crazy and. It's a good um, cast for crazy. <laughs> yeah, Diane Ladd, Laura Dern's mom, isn't it with Laura Dern, and she's just like Blanche Dubois on acid. It's a oh it, god. <laughs> yeah, it's. I'd recommend it if you're. I'm gonna interested. Do a list. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm close to seeing the filmography for Lynch, so hmm. it's something might be something I aspire to in the coming months. I haven't seen much, but I've I've seen Blue Velvet. I think I like this better. You've seen Blue Elephant Velvet. Man. I've seen Elephant Man, which is a very good movie. It's just so hard to compare those two. It's like. It's like uh, Elephant Man to me is the Benjamin Button of his filmography, oh, which is the, the Fincher. The Fincher yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Like this movie, how is this a David Fincher movie? But yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's probably my number one Lynch movie, but I have fewer Lynch movies. It is, I just don't want to call it the crowning achievement because I do think Elephant Man is probably that. But it's as, really good. As far as crowning achievement in Lynchness, this, <laughs> this, this might be it. Yeah. Uh, was the film financially successful? Anybody look this up? Uh, it made $25 million on like a $15 million budget. So, so ratio close to that. Not really. Uh, it didn't have mass appeal. I think the answer is obvious. I mean, it's just... No, it's not a movie that's... Nothing David Lynch ever does is going to have mass appeal. Correct. Really. Yeah. It's, it made 20 on 15 hmm. Did you Do you think it influenced cinema after it? I'm sure it did in some ways. It's hard for a revered director not to... I mean, I do think that all those films I was talking about earlier kind of share in Chris Nolan, M. Night Shyamalan. Like, Lin- David Lynch is a brand. Right. Influence. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I, I, I would agree that that take. Yeah. Well, David Lynch is like a experience, I think definitely influenced filmmakers, especially younger filmmakers, probably saw this at a uh, defining time. So, you know, we would start to see some of that stuff. Yeah, like I'm sure your guys Lance the most fucking loves David Lynch. Yeah, I think I do. I, I could definitely see that. I think that uh, Lynch. I weirdly get the vibe that Lynch is more of a critics director than he is a filmmakers director, simply because it's so hard to replicate that. Yes, <laughs> we were talking a little bit, but it's so fun to read into it. We were talking a little bit of the previous podcast about the Oscars and how like people don't like the quote unquote Oscar movies, and it's like, oh, David Lynch makes those like this is what everybody thinks all those movies are. <laughs> it's like this. Yeah. That that crew thinks that, like, you know, whatever. Shape of Water is a David Lynch movie. Yeah. And they're never going to see it. And it's like, no, Shape of Water is super easy to follow. It was real tame. <laughs> it's just a mermaid man sex. I sometimes, for, for, to, uh, for this question of influence, I sometimes like to go look at the results of the Sight and Sound poll, mm-hmm. uh, the last one they did. Yeah. Which is, uh, Mulholland Drive obviously got... Uh, votes in the polls for greatest movies of all time, but uh, so the way they do their poll is real quick. They uh, they just ask critics and directors from all over the world list your ten greatest movies, mm-hmm. and they just total up the number of times they appear. Mm-hmm. And I think he got I think Mulholland Drive was listed by like maybe nine or ten directors out of hundreds, and it was listed by like thirty critics. Yeah. So I, I get that feeling that critics that it's more loved by critics than it is by, I mean it's clearly loved by both. The BCC, I think the British Critics Circle, um, I know in 2015 voted as the greatest movie of the century. To echo kind of what yeah, you're I can see that. Again, yeah. it's just like I, I mean I can definitely I can see someone saying that Lynch influenced them as a director, but like. Not it's really hard for us to to see it because it's, no one is no one can do that. But not in like a filmmaking way, but right. in like a film creating way. I yeah. think is where his his testament will lie. Kind of. Nobody's ever found their own tone quite the way Lynch has. Right. Like, you know, every uh, directors have hallmarks of their directing or directorial style, and for some, it's. You know, there's a Scorsese vibe that has to do with the soundtrack and whatnot, mm-hmm. and uh, there's D- Tarantino's dialogue and whatnot, and a lot of that stuff is is attempted to replicate. But Lynch has just such a bizarre aesthetic 
that it's almost unrecreatable. No one would try to recreate that aesthetic. Right. But basically, you'd, you'd get tagged as just trying to be like Lynch. Right. Yeah, I mean, like we could talk about the. Yeah, it's way easier to pick up on that than it is to pick up on like me and Brett were talking earlier about Brian De Palmer's like camera work. Yeah, you know, it's like so similar in every movie, and you know, doesn't really jump out of the table like like this does. Jump yeah. off the table like this does. Uh, is it one of the best movies in its genre? A question that's always hard to answer, and even harder for this. Yeah, because, I mean, like, I don't know. This this whole question in the gauntlet is one that. You might want to reconsider at some point. Yeah. I, I hate this question. Because, <laughs> I mean, genres are so hard. And, like, if if this, like, a fantasy noir, is that the genre? Because then, yeah. But, like, is drama the genre? Then maybe not. And So, I think I think if we had fucker movies. Right. <laughs> I think this is... It's a tough question for when you're trying to build the talk of fame from scratch. I think it's an unhelpful question. But if we had a somewhat fully formed talk of fame, we could then ask, is this the best movie of this that's missing? Yeah. And I think it's it's easier to when you're talking about a movie, it's 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 a great question when you're talking about a movie that fits into a major genre singularly. Easily. Like, if we're talking about Halloween, is it one of the greatest horror movies of all time? Then like, yeah, I think it is. But when you're talking about especially with dramas, man, because they're there are dramedies, there are romances, mm-hmm. there are so much things to go on, and like rom coms don't ever fit in anything else except for rom coms, you know. So, uh, but to answer the question for this movie, I don't fucking know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the best I could think of would like be surrealist neo noir, <laughs> and then probably it's like what <laughs> America? Yeah, throw in Americana too, like maybe weird. Hollywood. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, has the film aged well? Are its themes still relevant? I think so, because they're timeless themes. They are timeless themes, like, I would agree. Wish fulfillment. Um, and it is time to vote. Well, hang on, before we do, is it not The Great Wall? <laughs> I mean, maybe. maybe Chris, Chris isn't here to figure it out. But but could it be? That's what we need Sure it could be. We'll have Chris type up something. All right, well, it's time to vote on Mulholland Drive for the Talk of Fame. Beep, beep, boop. I'll jump in real quick. Um, I think David Lynch is a iconic director already, and I think it's such an easy pick for me for a movie that I would recommend to somebody who's never seen any, and I don't know if I'd put in anything else other than maybe, I don't think I would put in Eraserhead, I think I might put in Elephant Man if it ever came up in a way different way, but it might be all I'd put in from him, honestly. I mean, you know, only seeing... 60% 60% of his filmography. It's You're saying this is the only thing you would put in because of Lynch. Because it's Lynch. And because of it's Lynch, you would want one in. It's Lynch. It needs to be represented, I think, in, in any group of movies. Especially for people like us who kind of enjoy these types of films. So mm-hmm. if Elephant Man gets in, it has to get in on non-Lynchian merits. Sure. And it, and it can, <laughs> is what you're saying. Yes. And it would, obviously, because there's nothing really... It's not really Lynchian in that way. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, having said all that... I'm going to vote for inclusion, I think. David? I vote yes. I think it is, uh, I think it's a great distillation of his vision. And it is nightmarish and grotesque and funny and more than anything, I think this movie is like a mastery of tone and unpredictability. 
And I uh, still find things that are still, like, shocking or new or things to me when I keep watching it. Or hilarious. Or hilarious. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think it's in on, on those merits, let alone the stuff I'm, I keep discovering, like, just being in love with the sound design and the shot composition, the cinematography and stuff. I'm just now, like, appreciating that stuff more. Yeah. I think there's, there's stuff there for even more watches to appreciate. Oh, yeah. I think for those reasons, it's in for me. Well, I guess my vote doesn't matter. Nope. What is it that I'm curious? Uh, my vote was uh, a pretty easy yes, because okay. as soon as I finished this movie, I thought, that was really fun. I can't wait till I'll see it again. Because, mm-hmm. Good sign. Yeah. Because it's the kind of movie that I know I don't need to see again to understand but I will get so much I will probably get more out of it the next time I see it and that is a that is something that just tells me that's a great movie if, if it has that quality mm-hmm. so really really fun to watch that movie even though it's very uncomfortable to watch that movie mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's perfectly Lynch it's both at the same time mm-hmm. yeah so David Lynch can celebrate by drinking, I don't know, warm milk in a dark room while <laughs> opera music plays. Whatever eating, he does in his spare time. Yeah, eating like raw, thin cucumber slices <laughs> dip, dipped in hot milk. It's half skim, half whole. He can, <laughs> he can walk around backwards like a broken doll would. <laughs> Do y'all feel up <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> That scared me. You saying that. Welcome to the NFO Blot. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, please don't send what's his name, the your best friend, the little person, to come collect any trophies. I like that this one too, just for extra horror. He gave him prosthetic limbs and limbs to make his head look extra small. <laughs> Why would you do that to me? <laughs> he's got like legs longer than mine hanging off that chair he's on. Tiny little head. God, it's horrifying. Well, that does it. Welcome to the Talk of Fame, Mulholland Drive. And uh, we've got homework for next week. Chris wasn't here with us uh, for this uh, podcast, but he has uh, he has told us what the homework will be. And uh, due to this actor's recent, quote, retirement from acting, we're going to be uh, watching a Robert Redford movie, and we're going to be watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Cool. For Fun. Next week. I think everybody's seen it except Chris. Have you seen it? I have. Yeah. It'll be a fun rewatch, though. It's a super fun movie. Yeah. Yeah. Great performances by the two leads. This will be our first kind of quote unquote Western we're talking about. True, like true Western, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, everybody watch that movie. It's on HBO Go, I believe. And maybe Amazon Prime. Yeah. But it may be Amazon Prime with the HBO Go gotcha. thing. So, and we don't know. Watch some more Robert Redford movies. I feel like there are a few out there that I have been meaning to catch up on over the years. I feel yep. like if you're born after a certain time period, you could have just had Robert Redford pass you by for his mm-hmm. influence. Yeah, I actually watched one that I didn't put on Letterboxd, so I left off my watch list, so that works out. Nice. I watched uh, one of Brent's movies. Favorite Robert Redford movies. <laughs> yeah. A movie a movie Brent directed. <laughs> Robert Redford is... I, I'll say this about it. It's a movie. It's uh, a movie. And this is a podcast. This has been Talkie Talk, the podcast for the media by us. Check out our website at themediabyus.com. You can join our Facebook groups and uh, give us some feedback or just talk about something that pertains to the categories in the groups Games by Us, Movies by Us, or TV by Us. Please rate 
and subscribe to our podcast. Uh, helps our visibility and whatnot. Even if you're mean to us, it helps our visibility. Uh, don't be mean. Don't be. Don't be un unfairly mean uh, give us an email at uh, mediabyus at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter at the media by us. we'd like to thank the willow walkers for willow our walkers. intro music and if you'd like to hear the willow walkers in person September 4th at Smith's Old Bar they'll be performing that Tuesday night go check them out and that's they're here in Atlanta and uh, also we want to thank Boo Reefa for the outro Boo Reefa! And Boo Reefa will be appearing, like, tonight, if you're listening to this. Right. Uh, it is, to your, this podcast coming out on August 17th. Boo is going to be in town tonight at Tin Roof Cantina. And, uh... Hot dog. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> cheap beer and good tunes at Tin yeah, Roof that Cantina. Is, what's the date? August 17th? August 17th. I was going to say, I want people to go to Tin Roof Cantina on Monday, because they listen to the podcast four days late. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At any point you listen to this, Burrifo will be at Cantina. In the reality of your choosing. <laughs> yeah, and if you're if you're listening to this like four years from now when the podcast is huge and Burrifo is huge, <laughs> you're gonna really wish you had gotten on board back in 2018. Yeah. Cantina, we were drinking Natty Light, watching Burrifo. Uh, that's it. Thanks, TJ, and thanks, David. Bye. 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 Kicking rocks. Down old dusty roads Small towns, slow pokes Long time ago Kicking out records of all the things that I know All the things that I know